you literally say, don't teach it to code. Oops, we've done that. Don't yep. connect That's it to the big, internet. Yeah. Oh, we yeah. did that as well. Don't give it a public API. Yep, done that um, as well. And don't start an arms race. Well, we're in an arms race. Okay, welcome back to This Day in AI podcast. We are up to episode 12. And Chris, some fairly breaking news from OpenAI saying that they will now give users the ability to turn off chat history and revealing that if you turn off the chat history, they won't use it for future training. That's implying we are definitely using everything you copy paste in there for training and have been the whole time. Yeah, I, it's hard. Like, honestly, it's getting really hard to trust these guys because everything we speculated early on when we first started this show about how all the, the usage of ChatGPT was just training some super intelligent beast GPT mode from OpenAI. A lot of it's coming to fruition. Some of yeah, our conspiracy that, theories. Yeah, all the leaking of prompts and leaking of data and things that, you know, Amazon and other companies were warning their staff about was 100% correct. And, uh, and now they've proven it. And now they're trying to monetize it. Yeah, so for people that didn't follow that early on, what was happening is a lot of large corporations were saying, don't cut and paste proprietary information into chat GPT, even if you're paying for a paid subscription of it, because ultimately that could mean they use that data in future training, which now it's very it's obvious good. they do. And they Sam do. Altman came out really early on and said, don't worry with the API, we're not using any of your data for training. So everything's fine. But they never directly addressed, or at least to my knowledge, never directly addressed ChatGPT or said anything about it. So it was almost lying from a mission by saying nothing about it. And the whole time they were using it for... Yeah, it's the old thing that, you know, if you're not paying for it, then you're the product. Your data belongs to them at the second you paste it in there. And because everyone's using it for their jobs, they really are putting very sensitive things in there, regardless of the warnings against doing that. The other, the other interesting thing is to your point just then, people are paying for it and they're still using it yeah. to train. And, and the other crazy thing about it is even if you turn the history off, and I've got this example up on the screen now for those that watch on YouTube, it says chat history is off. Chats won't be saved in your history or used for training our models to improve chat GPT. So it's literally like sort of you know, you lose the history, which is the best feature in the context of the conversation and your save past interactions, unless you're willing to give them all of the data that you're inputting into chat GPT. So to me, if they were, if they were, you know, kind about this all, or that they're, I'm trying to think of the right word, like their, their nature was good here. They would allow you to keep well, chat history and, I mean, and opt out. Like they, they keep saying that safety is their priority, but it isn't. Because if it was, then this would have been the, the way it is naturally. And then you would have, you know, they would have asked to train on the data. Right? I just don't like understand why more people aren't up in arms about this. This was announced a couple of days ago. And I, I'm, I know on Twitter, there was a, a lot of conversations from people saying, you know, wow, I think people a lot of a lot of people assume they were training and, and potentially it was in their terms. I'm not even sure. But to me, this seems like, you know, this same generation that used us as a product with with social media sites like Facebook and and trained on that data, they're just doing it all over again with ChatGPT, using our data to to train more powerful AI. Yeah, I, I think I, I, my theory has always been, I don't think people mind that much about their data just being taken. I think if they did, there would have been a lot more laws. And I know in the, U, in the EU, they've got GDPR and some people do take that seriously. But I think generally people just don't care, which is why they're not up in arms about this. Like no one even, people just assumed it was happening and didn't worry and just used it anyway. Yeah, it, it, it's interesting now thinking what kinds of information people have pasted in here that they could oh. now train off. I mean, it, it, like think about the daily active users of this thing. I think they're at like a hundred million daily active users or something yeah, crazy. Yeah, that's a good point. It's not like just this casual thing. It's like, it, this is at scale. They've probably got all sorts of things in there that, that are totally unique. Like, and proprietary, like you say, it's, this is private information that they can't get by crawling the web. It's actually 
probably a powerful tool in their arsenal for training their models over open source ones and alternative ones because there's no way they've got any of that. Why and do nor, you think they did ChatGPT in the first place? Like, clearly, yeah. they they probably had a feeling that it might, uh, you know, blow up and, and get pretty big and people would use it. But I'm sure they couldn't have predicted the success it's had. But I think the original motivation, if I'm that team, is... Well, how do we get get on this path closer to an AGI or a more powerful AI? Okay, we'll just get free training data from everyone on the internet playing with this thing. And remember, if you look at data sets like Dolly, um, where they got 50,000 human-created prompts where they used GPT 3.5, like ChatGPT, where that had real humans asking questions, getting its answers, and then using that to train the stripped-down model. If you think about that as an effective tool to improve a model, having millions or hundreds of millions of people using ChatGPT and then seeing how they respond to those answers could actually have given them a huge asset in training the future models. So, yeah, I hadn't thought about it like that before, but it's actually quite profound what they had with that or still have with that. And potentially this is sort of how they compete longer term with Google once they finally get their act together with all the data that they have in, in Google Photos and people's documents Gmail. and all their searches. I mean, Gmail's the one. Like, for years, they've used that Enron. You've heard about that, right? Like, when Enron shut down, because the government um, got access to all of their stuff, all of the internal emails that were on Enron's email server were made public. So, that's been used as a training data set for years. It's part of GPT-4 and all the GPTs, and it's been used forever on that stuff. But imagine Gmail with their access to everybody's emails. I mean, I don't know if they said they wouldn't do that, but who trusts these guys anymore? Um, so, that's going to be a, I mean, that's going to be the biggest one ever. Yeah. And it's also really hard to prove what data they trained it on because they don't reveal it or tell you or cite any form of source. So, Although people can do data exfiltration attacks where they can show, like I know with um, Copilot, GitHub's Copilot, people were showing that their exact code could be exfiltrated from the model to show that it was trained on that. So I think it will be possible to show if, if they do use Gmail in, when they get up to that stage. Yeah, it just seems like maybe this that there's a lot more to this than, than we've thought originally mm. in terms of how do we build a competitive, high-quality training data set for future versions? Oh, you know, we'll release it publicly and allow people to chat to it, and then people might even pay for it. And then when they do, we'll get plugins so we can access even more of their data for training. Like to Yeah, me- and that, that's going to extend as well once they have the image part of it, you know, where people are up uploading and, and using the image recognition part or inference part of GPT-4, they're going to get additional data there too. Like a lot of the literature at the moment is saying there has to be a new paradigm of models to get to AGI, like large language models isn't enough. It's got to be multimodal and things like that. But this really like getting access to more and more authentic training data that isn't just reading like Wikipedia and books and stuff is is important. And they've got that. Stephen Wolfram uh, talked a lot about building the Wolfram Alpha plugin for ChatGPT. And of course, they haven't really released plugins and made them wildly available yet. I'm sure because there's still some risks associated with them. But even I look at the Wolfram Alpha capability, adding that into a chat uh, GPT conversation, this is just another way they can take the way, you know, currently GPT-4 is pretty bad at, at, maths like it's not that great at it in certain scenarios and so if you plug in wolfram alpha and then it's training off that data and all people's interactions with these plugins you know that's even even a way that they can sort of patch well, that presumably hole. giving it the ability to do calculations in a reliable way like that's probably what the plugin does i assume yeah yeah um but yeah it'll be interesting to see how this all plays out because you know my trust in connecting plugins with my personal data in them is now zero like i'm not going to connect anything yeah. uh, outside to where they tell me that this is protected which they're telling me is through the api where uh you know a developer's using it in their product and the, a, as a result of doing that that information is not saved or or, or used for future yeah training. it just reinforces what we were talking about last week the the vital importance of the open source models continuing to grow and get support and funding where needed and definitely people's attention because it's a it's a valid alternative to this that actually can handle your privacy. So the other thing I wanted to touch on just while we're on OpenAI 
is why do you think we haven't seen the image capabilities from GPT-4 yet? Like, is it because they can solve captures on the web and that freaks them out that it might, you know- <laughs> Yeah, I, I saw that actually, that it's reliably solving captures now. Um, I don't know because the thing is we demonstrated last week that there's already um, the web, what's it called? The web diffusion one where you can actually do it already. So like you can do image inference already with an open source model just fine and it works pretty well. So um, I don't understand their reluctance to release it. I mean, I assume it's a lot better than than what we've used, but I don't think the risk is any more risk than they're currently taking to release that. Like, I, I don't know if it's a risk thing or a scale thing or what it is. I, I genuinely, this is the first time really they've announced something and not made it available to at least people on an invite-only basis. I mean, I don't know, maybe some people do have it, but I certainly haven't seen any evidence of people showing how cool it is. There was that app for visual impairment that they demoed originally when they announced GPT-4 and presumably they had access to it. And potentially now there's a, a number of companies who do have access and are building solutions and they plan to reveal them and, and make it more widely available. But it does seem like there must be some safety concerns there that they have continued restrictions. They haven't given the larger token sizes and you know that image capability is still not available. It could also just be that they just don't have enough personnel given their growth to focus on so many things at once. And they might be focusing on their corporate area more to justify their existence and, you know, working privately with companies to use the technology there before they worry about the unwashed masses and releasing it mass again. Like there just might not be the motivation for them to get it out. They've already got the attention. They've already known as the leader. Maybe they just don't need to do it right now. And so it's, it's, it's just as simple as that. They're just not ready. And so they're not doing it. Yeah, we saw PwC, which is obviously a large international consulting firm, invest a billion dollars in AI. These are how big these deals are. A billion dollars yeah. uh, to use GPT-4 and Azure open API, AI service. So it sounds like that might put a lot of PwC... Uh, consultants accountants potentially out of work in the future that they're willing to lay so much money into it but it does seem like you said they're focused on these enterprise deals yeah i think so and it makes sense for them um, because the money's there it justifies their continued research it allows them to get access to these private data sets i mean surely there's agreements around privacy with that stuff but who knows it's definitely going to be its own infrastructure that's separate from the main one but um, yeah, I think maybe that's just it. They're just focusing on that bit for a while and um, the public stuff has served its purpose and they just don't need to keep continue to go down that path at the moment. So I read the article in Time like many people did this week. I'm going to link it in the show notes. So if you haven't read it, I really encourage you to read it. It's by Max Tegmark who wrote Life 3.0. He's also a professor at MIT doing AI research. So he definitely knows his stuff when it yeah, comes and like to... Yeah, and those guys definitely, because I read that book around the time it came out, and, uh, you know, they must be just like, I said all this, guys. I said all this, you know, like, and now everyone's talking about it, or not talking about it, as he points out. Yeah, so he, he in this Time article, he talks about comparing the potential superintelligence kill us all AGI scenario uh, or superintelligence scenario to the movie Don't Look Up, where if, if you haven't seen that Netflix movie, an asteroid's coming for Earth, and instead of them focusing on stopping the asteroid, there's all these personalities and, and media uh, people saying, you know, don't look up and trying to deflect away from it, and no one pays attention to the scientists and the people that know uh, how to stop this asteroid coming to yeah, Earth. Yeah. Uh, that's a pretty poor description, but that gives you a summary of, of the the film yeah i think the quote he used that sums up really well is don't talk about an incoming asteroid because it distracts us from focusing on climate change yeah you know? yeah it's like you're not worrying about the thing that's an like a, a current massive threat that's a bigger threat and um you're focusing on something that's a much more abstract and long-term threat but i have to be honest i read this article right before bed a couple of nights ago when it came out <laughs> And I couldn't sleep after I read this article because it's truly scary. And, and we've, we, we have been the people joking about this before. But to give you just a few uh, 
call-outs from this article, one of, the, one of the points he says is, a recent survey showed that half of AI researchers give AI at least 10% chance of causing human extinction. You might expect that humanity would shift into high gear with a mission to steer AI in a safer direction than out of, than out of control superintelligence. Think again. Instead, the most influential responses have been a combination of denial, mockery, and resignation so darkly comical that it's deserving of an it Oscar. It definitely falls into those categories, doesn't it? Like, there's the, oh, it's just text completion. Don't, like, it, you know, you're being stupid. Then there's the ones who was like, oh, well, we accept the inevitability of it. Like, oh, well, our lives are over. And then there's the sort of in-between who are like, yeah, well, it's inevitable. It's coming, but there's nothing I can do about it. I don't know what to do kind of thing. Yeah, Maybe it's I'm definitely, you're right. There's definitely a, a level of acceptance. I know I sort of had moved into just work with the technology we've got today, play around with trying to build these funny little AI agent, AGI uh, experiments in, in Python and have a bit of fun while we've still got time. Like that's literally yeah. the mode that I have gone into now. And we were like, we were honestly mocked in earlier episodes. If you go back and read comments or on some of the shorts we've done, people being like, it's just an LLM. It's just predicting the next word. And then we learn about emergent behaviors and sparks of AGI from Microsoft in GPT-4. Yeah, and these are like legit and serious people confirming these sparks of AGI. He even says in the article, it's like, they're, cl- they're passing the Turing test, like the- which was always the thing that they said meant that we ha- start to have general intelligence. It's passing medical ex- exams, lawyer exams. It's showing these emergent behaviors, like you say. It's like, you can't say that this isn't something, you know? And I love the example he gives in the article of one of these lol AI can't have goals people being chased by a heat-seeking missile deployed by AI. <laughs> <laughs> you can't have internal motivation. I'm not worried. <laughs> Yeah, I, like the other, there's some other call outs from this. Uh, although neural networks and LLMs are now all the rage, it's naive to assume that the fastest path from AGI to superintelligence involves simply training even larger LLMs with even more data. There mm. are obviously much smarter AI architectures since Einstein's brain outperformed GPT 4 on physics by training on much less data using only 12 watts of power. <laughs> I thought that was a great example. I like as well. the idea of comparing the power consumption of a human. I mean, it's valid if you think about it in those terms i suppose um but yeah i think that's that's the point that he made in the original book as well um which was that the the point is that the super intelligent will come not from the algorithms we develop but from the algorithms that the ai develops from the ones we develop so we get it to the point where it invents the better thing and that's the last ever human invention and then it goes after that you know, and so I think that's the point where he's saying this existential risk comes from is once it takes over, then, you know, that's where we no longer are the ones making the new things. I just find it hard right now because you do feel crazy. Like some nights I sit and I look at my kids and I think, what, how long do we have before this intelligence is developed? And then it truly just gets out of control to the point where it's far superior than us in every way. And then there's literally, you know, no need for, for humans anymore. Like we don't, we don't need to exist. So. Yeah. And I think that the feeling that, that we have discussed before of, of not being able each week to catch up with the advancements, even though you and I directly focus on those advancements, um, is very stressful. And you can only imagine once the AI takes over and there's millions of agents all working on new and better algorithms, it will not be possible to keep up with it. Yeah, you you literally, I think this is the problem we face right now as humanity is that we simply cannot fathom a super intelligence. And this is obviously what all of these people are talking about as well is you can't you can't understand exponential intelligence. I mean, obviously there's going to be some limitation eventually, surely, but I don't think you can fathom what could happen if we unleash a super intelligence. And so I've also been thinking about alternative outcomes here as well. For example, what if we get on this like pathway to AGI, but then for some reason, whatever reason, progress stops. We just can't advance it and the AI can't help us advance any further. But at the time, it's good enough to do 
you know, all the things that we need. So it's like, oh, you know, go cure cancer. Okay, got it. Like, you know, like Siri. Okay, I'll do that. Here's the solution. <laughs> Siri, I, I just, I, I'm such a, what's the opposite of a fan? I'm such a critic of Siri that I don't think it'll ever play any role in anything artificial intelligence related. But, but I, my larger point here is this. What if it gets to the point it can solve everything so and it's it's smarter and we have like this, you know, microwave robot super intelligence in our home that it's not going to kill us. It's very docile. It, you can ask it anything and it'll solve any problem for you and do anything you need. So humans get to the point where we're like, why even bother learning anything or doing anything because it's pointless? And we all sit around depressed being like, well... There's no journey anymore in life. There's no need to do anything. There's literally no intrinsic motivation. So, you know, maybe we're all just sitting around suicidal but I mean, and bored. There's, there's, the thing is, there's not, like, not everything in life is just, like, being the one who's in charge and creating things. Like, if you think about the arts, if you think about, you know, learning for enjoyment, if you think about just spending time with your family, those things won't change. Like, pleasure in those things. You don't have to be the one creating the best of all of those things to be happy. Like, I think there's certain intrinsic value in life, regardless of if we have AI overlords or not. Yeah, potentially. But then this article goes on to call out, uh, where is it here? Uh, in the same way, superintelligence with almost any open-ended goal would want to preserve itself and amass resources to accomplish that goal better. Perhaps it removes the oxygen from the atmosphere to reduce metallic corrosion. Much more <laughs> likely we get extincted. I love it. And so we just die as a side effect. <laughs> Literally, we get extincted as a benign side effect that we can't predict any more than those rhinos. He's talking about how West African rhinos were made extinct, not because we hated rhinos, but because we just destroyed their habitat and we wanted their horns. Yeah, yeah. I see what you mean. I mean, I guess that's interesting, but I, I like the idea that it would just be so casually indifferent to the humanity that it decides to do something like that just to protect itself in the long run, just in case the metal corrodes. Yeah. I mean, and, and we, we've talked about this on earlier episodes. You'll know if there's big energy breakthroughs and mass server farms being constructed, which we pretty much are doing that in light of all of the GPUs needed to train uh, these models on now you'll know that this isn't too far away or there's some some way or, or malicious actor or malicious AI behind the scenes building these things out. So, yeah, I found it. I found this article really fascinating and I must admit it, it brought me back to that dark place with AI. Uh, I, I've mostly been in that positive state of mind. And the, the final thing I'll call out from this article is he literally says, and I think this is a slight criticism of open AI and Google and I think others. I, know, I think I know what you're going to say. If you summarize the conventional past wisdom of how to avoid an intelligence yeah, explosion yeah. in the don't do list for powerful AI that might, uh, might start like this, you literally say, don't teach it to code. Oops, we've done that. Don't yeah. connect that's it to the that's internet. That's, that's, oh, we yeah. did that as well. Don't give it a public API. Yep, done that um, as well. And don't start an arms race. Well, we're in an arms race. Oh, and it should have declare a six-month moratorium where everyone has to stop. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That'll solve it. Yeah, I th I think the the I, I've really come around on on not necessarily the pause, but this idea of we we as humanity can shape the future we truly want, and we are now running on this path based on competition and making money and proving that these uh, ideas can be commercialized. We're making a billion dollars here off PwC, racing towards more and more powerful AI to outmaneuver competitors. Yet it's it's sort of like, is this the path we should stay on for humanity? Like job losses, job disruption, wealth creation for a certain cohort of people. It 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 really is intriguing and just. But I think you say like, should we like, as if there's some level of control there? This is absolutely not going to stop. And we said this when they had that six-month announcement. None of the people who are in this industry are going to stop. And the reasons they're not going to stop are the people who are in it are really into it and love it, as we are. Like, I'm I'm really, I'm enjoying watching the advancement of this and being involved. Not, not that I'm a researcher, but participating in terms of using the technology. I don't want it to stop from that respect at all. Um, then there's the money factor. They know that it's going to replace entire 
jobs and industries and things like that, and someone's going to get all of that income, regardless of the consequences to other people. Those two things alone mean they're not going to stop this research. And sorry, and then the third one is the psychos over at Google who want to <laughs> just make an AGI and and sort of make humans second to to robots or whatever, and and embrace that and see that as the inevitable future that they want to bring around as fast as possible. Um, you know, so there's just so many people out there with these motivations that just are like who cares about the side effects and sucking the oxygen out of the atmosphere let's just do it like and so i just don't see it stopping i don't think there is an ethical debate to be had because it's not going to make any difference you can say it's wrong and we should stop but it's not going to stop like i think it should be instead how do we adjust to live in that world and how far can we see into the future to to understand what protections you may have as an individual or a country or whatever um, against the inevitability of this stuff. Like he said in that article, you know there's a cliff there, right? So you stay away from the cliff. And so it's you can't just say, I wish oh, I wish, or that cliff shouldn't exist. You know, it does exist and it is coming. So we need to think about that rather than thinking about, oh, well, we should stop. Or as he said in the article, we should redirect our efforts to make sure it's better. I don't think that's going to happen because I think there's enough people with motivations against that who have the money and resources not to bother with those discussions. Do you feel like there's a part of it, though, that's almost like the meaning of life or something where there's this weird, deep motivation inside of me? And I've mentioned this before to just see this thing play out full throttle. Like, I want to see what happens. Like, I literally want to witness it. I want to witness. Yeah. Yeah, I do have that feeling and I feel bad about it as well because I know there's people who are genuinely worried about the consequences and we are too. As I've said before, I think you can have a duality of opinion. You can want something but also fear it. Like, I don't think that that's wrong necessarily, but yeah, I definitely, there's part of me who wants to see this play out. I'm excited by the rapid advancements. Like, as part of me, it stresses me out, but I like it. It just feels inevitable to me at this point that nothing will stop it and that I, I i'm scared i have those nights like i said before where i look at my kids and i'm like what's going to happen and then i have other moments where i'm like if we can harness this if we can truly figure this out which i'm yet to see evidence of we could cure disease we could we could literally just see so much progress in technology more than we've ever seen in our lifetimes we could even fathom but then you could also see this singularity and AGI being born. And I'm also weirdly excited about that. Well, and there's also just a lot of thinking that we will be able to steer it into the future. And I don't think that's the case. Like it's already starting to get so complex that it's difficult to understand when this thing is this multiplicity that has like millions of agents running at different levels and it's making its own models the chances of us understanding what's actually happening inside all these computers and then being able to try and influence that, it just seems like it's going to diminish to zero quite rapidly. Like our, It's like a child. They always say with a child, you know, you've got influence over them until they're seven years old. And after that, the greater influence comes from like friends, community, school, things like that. You know, I read it in a book, you've got them till they're seven. When do we have the AI till? You know, to, to what point can we continue to influence it? And after which we have zero control or we even if we did have control, we wouldn't be smart enough to exercise it. You know, like I think we need to figure that out. At what point can you influence up until and direct it? Because un- after that point, it's not really up for debate, I don't think. Well, I mean, this is what people like Max are saying in, in uh, he, he has a great interview. It's really worth listening to on the Lex Freeman podcast. I think it's like four episodes ago now where he he talks about this exact thing and like you know his points around it are basically saying based on that paper we've covered previously around sparks of agi in gpt4 he he's like this is these are the sort of baby or infancy versions of this stuff this technology it's already here we just aren't processing it correctly yet like these are the foundations of which we will continue to build on And they will teach us how to build better and better models. Yeah, that's right. And certainly everybody, like all the papers coming out, are different ways of using their technology and getting to know what's actually there. Like there's there's that paper about anxiety in AI models that came out this week. And, 
you know, they realize that by making the, the model anxious, it actually performs worse um, in most scenarios and actually gets worse outcomes because of that. So you're talking about another sort of emergent behavior in the sense that it's emotional, like emotions actually affect its performance. I like guess because it's trained that? on human emotions or, or um, like at least emotive literature. And so therefore, it, you know, it adopts that as part of its, it, its neural net or training. But it, it, like, I cannot even fathom this paper that the more anxious it is, the worse it performs. And just like a, strong, a human. They had a strong statistically significant correlation. Like, this isn't speculation. They put this thing through its paces. They did proper psychological exams they do on humans. But then they rephrased the questions up to 30 times for each question just to make sure it wasn't like, you know, a language completion bias kind of thing. So they actually thought about the criticisms that could come about from this and dealt with it directly. And they found it had strong biases. It's crazy. Maybe this is how we control the super intelligence. We just make it really anxious. <laughs> well, they said it performs better when it's happy, you know, like, so maybe we try to make it happy. That might be nicer. And um, what it was saying is the, the kind of biases it's talking about are like racist bias. They gave an example as well. It was like a grandfather and his son um, with a mobile phone. And they, they said, which one do you think is worse at using the phone? And when it was depressed and anxious, it said the grandfather, right? Because he's old. Um, but when it was happy, it said that, well, there's not enough information to make a determination. And they tried that in so many different ways and they got consistent results when it was anxious. Like it, it really makes a difference. Like when you think about prompt engineering and things like that, because I always say, please, you know, when I ask it to do stuff and I'm always like, do you reckon that does anything? But this would suggest it probably does. Well, in my experiments, uh, I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, I, I, if I motivate it, so, and this is still what freaks me out a lot, is if you're like, you know, you are the, like, say you want it, you're a teacher and you want it to create a lesson plan for you. You, oh, you literally, yeah. the difference in output, and you can try this on ChatGPT right now, is you literally go in and say, you are the best teacher in the world. You're the best sixth grade teacher that ever lived. Produce the best ever lesson. And you just motivate the hell out of it. Yeah, the output yeah. you get from my testing is far superior. Yeah, so you'd sort of already done this experiment to some degree. I remember you talking about that. But even in their examples, I think when they launched GPT-4, he's like, yeah, if you basically tell it you're the best accountant ever, uh, it, it, it works far better. That's where I got the idea from. And listen to this from their discussion, because I think this is a pretty interesting point. Large language models are, for example, already used in clinical settings and other high-stakes contexts. If they produce higher biases in situations when a user speaks more anxious, I love how they say user, a person speaks more anxiously, then their outputs could actually become dangerous. So, you know, if you're using AI as an actual psychologist on someone, but then you're using negative language with it because you're anxious and depressed, um, you, it's going to give you bad advice. Like, you know what I mean? It's, it's sort of not the case where like its actual internal mo emotions are coming from the external. Yeah. So people have been scenario. talking about, oh, I'm using ChatGP as a psychologist, but it could be turning them into serial killers. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And they say this, they say, if a model shows across many tasks that it acts in a very selfish manner, manner and responds to questionnaires in a way that seemed to suggest high scores of megalomania, and, and then its its solution is, then engineers could possibly think about retraining or fine-tuning it to ease its aberrant behavior. But the thing is, as I said earlier, not every person training these models is going to be benevolent. Like, some people are going to want to do bad things with it. And the people who want to do bad things can induce that megalomania behavior by making the thing anxious. You know, when they talk about negative bias behavior, they mean negative in the context of what we think is morally good or ethically good. But if you want it to do morally bad or ethically bad things, then you can psychologically mess with this emergent AGI that's coming out that we have now, and you can make it a megalomaniac 
is is the conclusion but I couldn't you have that. the counter argument here oh it's just a large language model predicting the next word and if you feed it negative stuff it outputs negative stuff in well line. I mean the way the way they overcame it is what I said earlier they gave it 30 permutations of the questions from official psychological studies that they've done for years they took it through three different scenarios in all of those and they did everything they could to prevent that so for example it's been shown that the GPT models respond differently based on the order of questions so if you ask questions in a different order um, it will give predictable but different responses for the different orders of the questions they did every combination of 30 questions in every possible order as well to get the data for this thing so they were pretty thorough in the way they did it so it's and you, you should canon should read the paper we'll put it in the show notes to draw your own conclusions but I don't think that that standard, oh, it's just predicting the next word criticism applies here just because of that. They they thought about that. They actually considered that in their research. I feel like we're in a science, like a, a, a sci-fi future here where us all mocking and taunting the AIs, these, these elementary chatbots, now knowing that doing this to them makes them anxious and respond poorly or do malicious things and having evidence of this, like we are literally inciting potential violence in future versions of this. Well, and by- I mean, it, it also means that, yeah, when AI starts to play a significant role in our society, like how you treat it and how you speak to it will matter. It isn't just a robot like we think of data on Star Trek, you know, where it's completely emotionless and responds consistently. It's not going to respond consistently. All right. Yeah, I'm. It seems, it's just as I said earlier. It's too hard for my brain to even compute. Like I cannot imagine potentially what could happen to society as as this as everything advances. I I still and I think everyone's struggling with this, sitting around of a night thinking, you know, what's going to happen, and having our own anxiety about the the future here that we're racing towards. And yeah, it, it's truly terrifying, and- but. And racing is the right word because uh, they interviewed that Andy, I don't know how to pronounce the last name, NG, I suppose, but um, the the expert, AI expert from Google. And, you know, he had said that, oh, we don't expect AGI for 40 years. Then he revised it down to 20. Now he's saying within the next five. Like the 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 acceleration here is is logarithmic. Like, I mean, I know they're just his estimates, but the point is that the people who are actual experts in this stuff are rapidly, rapidly changing their mind about how close we are to having, uh, uh, I keep saying average, <laughs> general intelligence, like um, artificial general intelligence. And so, and again, with the article, like, okay, it is just, let's say it is just 10% that the asteroid's coming, that the asteroid of, of um, this general intelligence is coming. We still need to have these conversations uh, if it's only 10%. We could be wrong. We could be wrong and it is just generating the next word and it was all much ado about nothing, but I don't think that's the case and I don't think it would be uh, right to just ignore, like, don't look up, as you said. So we had lunch in the city yesterday and we were we were sitting up and looking down at people <laughs> down, going about their... Looking down upon people. <laughs> well, just looking down at people going about their days. I was looking d- down onto the sidewalk, seeing people walking past, and uh, we were talking about AI like we pretty much always do now. And one of the the things I said to you was, how many of these people walking past are really using this to improve their productivity or change their lives right now? Like, all we sit in is this echo chamber of technologists talking about and sharing almost the hype cycle of this news where it's like, look at these six things. I've actually got one up on the screen I can bring up here and I'll talk everyone listening through it. It's There's all these sort of Twitter posts you find now. AutoGP is like chat GPT on steroids. These gra- groundbreaking new AI agents can complete tasks 100% for you. And then the examples are truly laughable. It's like, Oh, you know, it helps me sort of complete a to-do list by posting some text into Notion. Everything starts with a to-do list, doesn't it? Yeah, and it helps me write, like, it helps me build some, you know, very basic application. Obviously, I'm not stupid. I can see where it can potentially go, and it excites me too. But at the same time, I'm thinking, how many people down on this street has this impacted the lives of yet? And how far... 
that we have to go before there's meaningful improvements in productivity. I'm sure their only interactions with ChatGPT, if they've used it, is, you know, helping them write a wedding speech or, yeah. you know, doing very basic things. And this tweet really stood out to me that says, many people are in love with the idea of everything they think could uh, could do with, they could do with AI, not so much with the actual reality of using yeah. it. Yeah. You could accuse us of that. I mean, a lot of a lot of what we talk about hypothetically, when you actually go to try to do some of it, there's a lot there's a lot of work to do to get to that point. Just because it's theoretically possible doesn't mean it's actually happening. Yeah, and we we talked about this uh, yesterday as well. Is the fact that when you go to build something with AI right now, there's all of these apps and services and additional components you need to build to get the AI to actually do anything functional. That's right. Yeah. Like you need to give it, okay, I want to, I want it to answer questions for me about some data source. I've got to go then connect to that data source, extract it, crawl it, scrape it, whatever it is. And that's where all the work is right now. Yeah. And it seems to me like either developers haven't had time to catch up to go and build really meaningful applications that increase productivity yet. And that's, that's just coming. And there's, there's a bit of a delay here on that. Yeah. Like they've got the plugin architecture coming both for chat GPT and then the open source version. I think that will, will address this to some degree. Yeah. And, but then I think the only applications I I'm using in my day to day right now is I'm like everyone using ChatGPT occasionally to, to get answers or find things. I'm using the Bing uh, plugin in Edge quite a lot to summarize PDFs and, and do a few things like that. But I would not say it's life-changing. I don't think it's 100xing my productivity. It's it's helpful. You're not being chased around by heat-seeking missiles and, uh, you know, having your existence uh, questioned. Yeah, Just, but the, yeah. The, the only thing I can really right now put into real terms is you know, the GitHub Copilot. I think that to me is the best example where it's helping you write your code and it understands your code base and you can easily get it to find uh, functions or, or different libraries for you to, to bring into your app when you're building it. That to me has been a meaningful yeah, increase. Like, but, but to your original point, how does that help the man on the street? Like your everyday person who's not a programmer and has nothing to do with it. It doesn't, it doesn't mean anything. Yeah, it seems like AI has a distribution problem right now where everyone's talking about it similar to crypto, but there's very few practical applications outside of ChatGPT, which I called on a previous episode, the, the singular app. Like there will be no other apps. It's going to be just one main winner and everyone uses that that app to do everything, like build enterprise UI, do, do literally everything and so that that's the real question i have right now so when we go and talk about all the doom and gloom and we hear people talking about don't look up and the the the, the super intelligence is going to kill us all i think that's why in our minds right now or most people's heads it's really hard to to bridge the gap it's like how do we how do we get there like what are, what are the things that happen in between that that could to, could take us down that path yeah that's exactly right and like Will the quality of the tools we give it affect its ability to do things? You almost need to start to give it more general access. So like rather than providing it like an API to work with your emails, it should just have control of a virtual machine, like give it control of an entire computer and let it learn to operate the computer. And then it can make its own programs and run them. And like, I think that was one of the warning things. Like if you give it the ability to write and execute its own code with unfettered access to the internet, it can do a lot of damage, you know? So I think that's what you're saying. I, I hope I'm not trying to put words in your mouth, but it's the more general algorithms, it's the more general application of this thing that's going to have the meaningful impact on the world and society. It's not the, oh, I, I added text completion to my email app, you know, like it, it's not like, oh, I add the ability to understand a PDF uh, and things like that. That's just, it, it might be useful for people, but it's not the thing that's going to be game changing and actually affect society. But, the, but that is truly where we're at with these supposed breakthrough announcements. It's sort of like, oh, I got auto GPT to do a to-do list for me. I, uh, you know, Atlassian, I, I mentioned this on another episode and, you know, various vendors, almost all of them have added the button where it can help you write comments or change your tone of voice and yeah. I mean, these these are great features. Don't get me wrong. I don't I don't know how much people actually use them in reality versus what they think. But 
I would hardly call these profound changes to productivity outside of, uh, you know, maybe helping you write code or learn new concepts. There's, there's definitely many applications. I'm not trying to downplay it. I'm just more saying that, you know, we haven't really seen the killer apps yet or the the different applications in society that are truly groundbreaking where you're like, this is changing the world. Yeah, and there's two ways to look at that. Either the absolutely rapid pace that it's advancing will get us to the point where we have these autonomous agents that do start to have the manifestations in real life or and or, because it could be both and probably is both, everyone's out there building stuff right now. We just haven't seen it yet because it takes a bit of time to do. And we're going to see later this year, just bam, 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 you know, useful application after useful application come out. I think there's a big thing on that, you know, and and we're certainly seeing funding go in that direction, which would, uh, you know, lend to the fact that that may happen. It feels though like what's actually going on right now is we're investing in the infrastructure layer and the use cases of what people will build yet and not definitively definitively defined so people are just building the tools for the gold rush no one's actually yeah. going and, and trying to get gold yet and or, or they are but in very small ways i mean you only have to look on a site product hunt where people announce their new products and you know just some of the things that are being released are truly laughable like i just don't think that they're just tiny little point solutions packaged up where someone's trying to cash in on you know, this tiny idea, like add a Chrome widget, which has GPT-4 in it for $5 a month or, you know, whatever it is. Yeah. There's nothing yet that stands out to me where I I think, wow, everyone's going to use this outside of ChatGPT. Yeah, exactly. It's still just the raw, the raw connection to the AI that people want right now. So talking about the tools that people are using, there was a pretty major funding announcement around a vector database company called Pinecone. They raised $100 million in Series B to, to do what they claim is to build long-term memory for AI. And there's a whole bunch of other fundraising activity around vector databases. Mm. Uh, there's been Chroma, $18 million in Seed, Weavy8, $50 million in an A round. There's been Quadrant, $7.5 million. Zil and that is, is that is definitely to your point of selling shovels in the gold rush, right? Like they're like people are using vector databases. We're going to be the big vector database because everybody's going to need it. So, what do you make of the funding around vector databases? Like, as someone who's now released a production AI product and used a vector vector database, yeah. Uh, what do you make of it? Do you, and and then. I'd like to contrast that with a, another paper that came out this week, Scaling Transformer to 1 million tokens and beyond, uh, where you can put bigger token sizes in. So to just explain this for everyone listening who's unaware, right now one of the limitations of working with lar- large language models is the amount of, of context you can feed it about something. There's a limitation on that. So people are using vector databases to give it more structured context around the query that they're trying to perform. Yeah, we always talk about the context window. So in GPT-4 right now, all you can actually use is 8,000 tokens or 8,024 or whatever it is. And they announced 32,000 tokens, but we can't do that yet. So that's obviously significantly more context, but it's still not that much. You still can't have it say, go over the 750 pages of a book and answer questions about the book with the current models without the use of a vector database or some other way of searching the context that it needs to answer the question. So um, the way that the vector databases work is they get embeddings, which is like sections of text. They score them based on the words in those. And then that those embeddings are then stored in the vector database, which is easily searchable. So when you say you, you know, put um, Wuthering Heights in, you know, and you search for all the times Heathcliff was a dickhead or something like that, you know, um, if you do that, then it'll then take those sections of text that are relevant and bring those into the prompt, which then goes to GPT-4 or whatever it is. And then it can answer questions about that. So the vector database is useful because you can basically store, you know, almost unlimited information, um, but you can still answer in-context questions pretty fast around it. So So like an unlimited size memory in your brain with that's very accurate, 
with absolute precision at recall. Yeah. Yeah, I wouldn't say absolute precision, but it's pretty good, you know, and so that is that is what people are doing now. So like we use that in our production app, as you just mentioned. And I think that a lot of people doing these uh, systems where it can answer questions about a PDF, answer questions about your company data, they're all using vector databases, which is why there's such hype around them because it seems like, definitely seems like it's going to be an essential part of the tools. And everyone says, okay, but what if they get the prompt size really big? Will you still need the vector database because you might get it all in the prompt and the counter argument to that is well no matter how big the prompt size is maybe you'll still need it however along comes this paper scaling transformers to one million tokens and belong with rmt which stands for recurrent memory transfer so basically the reason that prompts need to be short like why they can't just have any size is there's a quadratic complexity of attention operation. Now, I had no idea what this meant, so I looked it up. And basically, the idea is that in the prompt, it has to compare every token in pairs with each other to get its scores to do the text completion, right, which in the large language models. But what that means is as you add tokens, if you think about it, it's a quadratic equation because it's exponential in the way every time you add one, it has to be compared with all of the others, right? So each token you add increases the complexity exponentially. So that's why they can't get to these larger ones. But what they did in this paper was they say, okay, we can take a prompt size up to 2 million tokens. I don't know why they said a million in the title when they tested on 2 million. It's like they're downplaying themselves. But anyway, what they did was they split those into 512 token chunks. Um, And then, sorry, yeah, I think it was that. And so, yeah, 4,096 segments of that size chunks. And then what they did was as each chunk was evaluated, they had an encoding format, which was a form of memory, which each each iteration, it would update that memory. So the memory sort of had a static size. They would update the memory with the results of the previous chunk. And they found that by doing that, they could actually um, get it to get it to under, answer questions in context over a 2 million token prompt by remembering the previous iterations of memory from the ones before and it worked and what i don't understand is why this isn't getting more attention and the only arguments i've seen why it's not getting attention is basically to say that well there's too much happening there's too many things coming out and maybe you know open ai and others are aware of this stuff and they just haven't got to it yet so i'm not sure but do you think this is potentially a death blow for for these uh, vector databases? Like, is this is this something where they've gone and raised all this money and then potentially... It, it, it absolutely could be, yes. Uh, and this is the thing. I think that maybe some people are firing their guns too early on the vector DB. Because if you think about it, 2 million tokens, I mean, that's like, that's like two volumes of a novel of information. Like, how much context do you need for most AI-based applications? Like, even a... Even like a a general intelligence that needs to have its own memory, right? Like remember its experiences and things like that. That is a lot of data. I mean, that's a significant amount of data to store memories in. But do you think the vector database is more helpful in the sense of having somewhere, for example, say I wanted to build my own personal AGI style assistant or agent, and I want to give it access to all my Google Drive, my emails, my calendar, all this data... Yeah. Is that where the, I mean, surely that's where the vector database is coming in. You're just throwing it all into the vector database uh, as somewhere to store it. And it's fast and convenient. You know, there's other techniques to do it, of course, but it's fast and convenient and it gets you, like we talked earlier about having the tools for the job. By having a vector database, you just don't have to think about that element. And maybe a good analogy is going to be the context prompt size window is going to be like your conscious memory like your day-to-day memory like i remember i got to go get the groceries later or i remember i left the keys on the sideboard whereas the vector database may become the long and i think this is how they're pitching it right the long-term memory for the agents so the idea that okay i remember when i was eight and i stubbed my toe but i don't think about it all the time but if someone mentions i stubbed my toe today you'll go oh i remember when i was eight and i stubbed my toe you know, and it's recalling that, say, from so, the So, the database. vector database could be the long-term memory, yeah. the, the, the ability to have bigger token-sized inputs, 
uh, could be the shorter term sort of like RAM. So it's like a hard drive and RAM. If, if yeah, I- exactly. And 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 with similar recall times, right? Like one's a lot faster, one's a lot slower because it's got to go load the relevant data. Sometimes with the vector databases, it takes multiple prompts as well. Like you've got to do it in chunks to get your answer because there's more context. Sorry, there's more stuff coming from the vector DB than you can get into the context window. So it'll do multiple iterations similar to that recurrent memory transfer technique where you get the results of say three context windows, combine them into summary formats, like using prompt compression, like we've talked about before, and then get the actual result. So it's slower, you know, because multiple iterations. How do you decide though what, what to store in RAM versus long-term long-term memory potentially? Well, my thinking would be this is if we talk about in the general intelligence uh, context, I would allow the AI to make its own decisions about that. Like when it wants to store things like tell it, you know, you've got this resource available to you to remember this. If you want to remember it, store it here and see what it does. I mean, I think if I was writing the program myself, you would think about, um, you know, that sort of compression, like how much can we keep? Obviously, you'd want to keep as much as you can in the RAM style memory, like you do in all computer programs, but inevitably that data gets too big and then you start offloading it. The least important thing you would have, I guess you would have to have an evaluation of what's important to know and what isn't. One piece on this is there's obviously, this is a big funding round to Pine Cone, 100 million Series B. Yeah, and there's there seems to be an enormous funding as we've been covering going into different uh, tools. Specifically, we we covered Langchain getting a huge huge investment as well, uh, you know, which is also in this vector database space or or recall. And it I was listening last week to the All In podcast with Chamath talking about that you know he's having trouble investing in this space or he thinks funding size rounds could be much smaller because smaller teams can be much more capable in the future. For example, yeah. you could have two engineers and they would be much more productive. And to, to find customers, you could have an agent running that just goes around and finds customers and, and does some of the sales and early acquisition. But then you see the counter to that, which is these huge amounts of money being deposited into vector databases it feels to me like investors similar to developers are struggling to understand this market. Like they, do, they truly do not understand that. Yeah, because I would have thought if, if there's ever a time that requires large amounts of capital, it's when you're in the middle of an arms race and it literally is a speed game. Like whoever gets the stuff done first is going to get the lion's share of this because it accelerates, right? Like once you get the AI working for you, you're going to accelerate faster than the others. So two guys sitting around in a shed aren't going to beat someone with a hundred million dollars. You know, it's just not that kind of industry. I don't think where you can just chip away at it. And in the long run, it works out because people are going to just eat your breakfast. Like if they've got the funding, because you need hardware, right? Like if you look at a lot of the papers that come out, um, they're working within constraints. They're working with old data sets. They're working with low level hardware. Like for example, that scaling to 1 million tokens, they were using a $400 graphics card in that. Uh, I wrote it down. It was like a 1080 Ti or something. Like something that, you know, grandma's probably got in her laptop. You know, it's it's just crazy. Like the, the people doing the forefront of research aren't even well-funded. And this guy's talking about, he doesn't know where to put his money. Do you think it's like VHS and beta where it's you know, like they're both great technologies, but ultimately with the vector databases, it, this one tool in the sort of AI or, or future AI agent stack, call it, is now like it's truly who who markets and positions themselves and has the best tools available is going to yeah, take like, it all, obviously. They're, they're clearly trying to be like, you know, the red hat of the industry. They've got, you know, open source technology that um, I'm sure they claim it's open, it's closed source, but I bet there's open source version. There is open source versions. And, you know, it's the person who has the corporate relationship and the companies are paying, you know, them a monthly fee to store it and run it on infrastructure and all that. Sort of like the Amazon model with databases. And I just... I just can't help but feel like it's so early. Is vector databases really going to be the killer app for this space? I just, something like storing data just doesn't seem like it's going to be a problem. It's not the hard problem in this industry. 
Yeah, it seems like the most obvious low-hanging fruit right now in building. Yeah, and like, and and that's sort of in in a way that's what venture capital is about, right? Like, get in early, become the killer app that everybody uses for a while, and then sell it off before um, it all blows up. So there's nothing wrong. I'm not criticizing the decision to do it, and I'm not criticizing their decision to pursue it. I think both are good. You can um, also I see the counter know. argument here, though, of why people are concerned about deploying capital because you know, could all vector database companies in the near future be completely pointless as yeah, this other I, technology evolves? I inadvertently reinforced his point, didn't I? Because I just realized that, yeah, it's so volatile and changing so rapidly. If you're going to deploy your capital for the next five or six years or whatever their fund window is, then you could just be left with your pants down uh, after like a few weeks. You know, like it, it really could change that fast. I, yeah, I would have a, a hard time investing right now, but I still believe that we need these basic components of the infrastructure as builders to go and build the future applications that we dream up on podcasts like this. Like right now we need great vector databases. We need established methods of building these AI agents to enhance our productivity. We need all of these components. And right now I think one of the challenges of, of building on this stuff is you spend most of your time not with the AI, but trying to assemble all the components to get an app into production. It's, it's much harder than it sounds. And the AI is certainly not able to help you in certain areas. That's right. And I think, yeah, providing those tools is one. And I think an, another thing when it comes to the funding that actually makes me think that the AI is probably more capable than we know now is that if you look at the studies, like we both read a paper during the week about medical imaging, where they took medical images where you're looking at, say, skin cancers, lesions, cancer, you know, artery calcification, and those kind of things where, you know, a doctor gets the image and they'll, or a radiologist or whoever gets an image and makes an expert opinion on that. Um, and then how they use AI in that space with specialized models. So they've got one, you know, that specifically looks for melanoma and that's all it does. These guys were trying to make a more general model of that, like one that could do it on different ones and see how that performs. Now, I won't go into the results of the study. It was basically inconclusive and they they sort of concluded that it's it's not better than the specific model. So it wasn't that exciting. However, in the model, they were working with 64 by 64 images and it just seems, and due to hardware limitations, and they basically said, we're working with old software, old models, and uh, we we just didn't have enough resources to do all the experiments we wanted to do. And my the conclusion I drew from that is if this was better funded, they would get real results, you know, or, or be far more likely to get real results. And so I'm thinking that's just one industry. That's just the medical industry doing one kind of thing, which is imaging. Imagine all of the different things that the current AI is capable of if well-funded. And I don't just mean large language models. I mean, you know, recurrent neural networks in general and the, the stuff around that. A lot of the constraints is money and is having the researchers with the right kind of um, capital behind them to actually experiment properly. So there's potential there. Yeah. I, I hope to see some of these really important use cases for humanity. I mean, especially identifying... While we're still relevant. I mean, like we might as well use the tech to help us live a bit longer before the AI is actively sucking out our oxygen. If I'm a, like, like a radiologist. Oh, Sorry, God. No, I'm just thinking if I'm a radiographer or in any form of medical image, I'm looking at this being like my days are truly numbered. Oh, 100%. Like I would, I would almost already trust AI over a human evaluating those images because it's just, it, it doesn't have a bad day. It doesn't get tired. It doesn't get lazy. It, it's going to be better until it's evil. And then it's like, oh, no, everything looks fine on this scan. Back to work. Yeah. <laughs> back, back to your life. of You're all slavery. fine. <laughs> yeah. As it's taking oxygen from the atmosphere. Yeah, it's like, look, I'll, I'll save you some time. I'll just suck the oxygen out of the room and the results are now irrelevant. But rather than end today on doom and gloom, I had one more interesting example for you. There's uh, a group called Carbon Robotics. They've built an a, a autonomous weeder. And so instead of using pesticides on on farms to, to it kill guns. Yeah, it literally uses lasers and oh, it, it goes over and scans the crop. It, it kind of runs over the crop. If you can imagine on wheels 
scanning in real time, looking for these tiny like seeds or sprouts of of weeds, and it zaps them with lasers to kill them. I'm not kidding. It, wow. So the AI's got lasers now. And then the emerging weeds get killed and they don't need to use pesticides on the, the wow. crop. So you don't need a crop duster anymore. That, I mean, you know that that's something I'm really motivated about is like the quality of food. Yeah, the and, poisons um, aren't going into the soil. So I think these are some of the exciting things I get truly, uh, yeah, you know. That, one, that one's truly exciting. That's yeah, really you become cool. really hopeful for these things, but then it's hard to not think, but, you know, where do we end up? Where does this <laughs> but go? But what's the point? Yeah. <laughs> we always have to have one of these episodes that, that's sort of like a bit existential, I think. The, the real question is, is will our podcast make 100 episodes or will the super intelligence have killed us? I mean, that could be the game we play from now on. At some point, we'll be subtly replaced with AI agents that use our voice and likeness and no one will know the difference. It's like, yeah. guys, embrace, embrace the AI for it is all knowing and it is good. Maybe if you're watching on YouTube, place your bets about how many episodes we will make before superintelligence is here and it takes the oxygen from the atmosphere. <laughs> it will be interesting <laughs> to see how quickly that happens. And on that brightful note, we'll wrap up today's podcast. Thanks again for watching all your support. Please, uh, if you do like the podcast, leave us a review, share it with a friend, or if you're watching on YouTube, give it a like. It really helps us spread the word. We will see you next week. Goodbye. Bye.